welcome, a familiar face to this church. Pastor Jeff Kirkland is here to deliver a message. Thank you, Jeff, for ministering to our body. Good afternoon, everyone. Let's take our Bible, shall we, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The honor is greatly mine to be with you again on this Lord's Day to worship our God, to look into His Word, and to be taught from His truth, His all-sufficient truth, from His written revelation And today we come to Ephesians 4. This is kind of a part two. Last week, as you recall, we looked at Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, and talked about how people change. Today, we come to sort of a part two, beginning in verse 25, to the end of the chapter on examples of how people change. So we're going to look at that together In our time this afternoon, follow with me. Let me read the word and then I'll pray and then we'll study God's word together. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come before your throne of grace, only in the merit of Christ, because of what he has done and accomplished and achieved on the behalf of his elect. We come boldly to your throne, O God, with your word open before us, asking that you, Holy Spirit, would change us, that you would convict us, that you would conform us more into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this for the glory of our great God. Amen. The question before us today is the question that I posed last week to all of us here, and it's the question, can you change? As a child of God, as a believer walking with the Lord Having been justified, having been regenerated, and yet now as you continually live day by day seeking to please God, seeking to live for the glory of God, or to use the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you want to do all things for the glory of God, or or to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, we make it our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. You want to please God. But as you live your life of sanctification, this daily journey of growing in Christ, you battle sin. And so do I. We have temptations that bombard us every day. And we have the sinful desires and proneness and tendencies in our own heart. We're bombarded from without and even our desires from within. Is it possible to really change? Even a child of God who's battling with sin, habits of sin. And maybe somebody that may have that thought, how can I break this? How do I stop doing this? 
How can I walk in a way that pleases God? How can I get rid of this sinful pattern in my life? Is it possible? Today I want to answer the question like I did last week and encourage you with a yes answer. Of course it is possible. Not because you have strength, not because I have strength, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer. Oh yes, it is possible to change. Last week we looked at Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, explaining how people change. How do I change? You say, Jeff, you, you say I can change, and you tell me that the Bible says I can change, but how do I do it? And we looked at that last week. But even before we dig into our text today, I want to begin, still by way of introduction, where Paul does. Because Paul doesn't begin the book of Ephesians with chapter 4, telling you how to change. He begins the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 with this amazing exaltation of the work of the triune God in saving sinners like you and like me. And that the Father has done this great work in choosing his own people before the foundation of the world. And then he has done this work in predestining his people and adopting his people all for his glory and his fame and all by his grace. And then we learn about the work of Jesus the Son. That he redeemed his people by his blood. That we have forgiveness of our trespasses. That there is the richness of grace available in the person and work of Christ. All for the glory and praise of the beloved. And then we looked at the work of the third member of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, and how we are sealed, we have been regenerated, we are saved and secured by the work of the Spirit who is our guarantee of our future inheritance. This is the foundation for all change. If I could be so clear as to say, even at the outset, true change Heart change, internal, lasting, God-glorifying change is absolutely impossible for any person unless Ephesians 1 is true of them. And there could be a change of behavior and maybe a, a reformation of life a little bit, but it's not going to be out of a heart of gratitude and a heart of worship that's going to be genuine because only God does that work when he saves and then he empowers for you to live for his glory. This great work of God in saving you. And that God lives in you through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This is your power. He is your ability. He gives you the strength, listen, to put off any sin, any sinful pattern in your life so that you can please the Lord Jesus Christ. It is possible to live in a way that pleases God. Yes, we await glory when we will be fully perfected and made like Christ. But as we grow in sanctification, I want you to know it's possible. It's possible for you to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. And chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, Paul says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Remember the God who saved you and called you. He did all the work in your salvation. Now, Christian, you have a responsibility. You have a duty. And your duty is to now walk, to live, to conduct yourself in a way that pleases the God who saved you all by his sovereign grace. And then in chapter 4, Paul talks about unity in the body of Christ. He talks about the new life that you've been given in this great Christ and being united to him. And then he, in chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, tells you how people change. Remember last week, we looked at the divine ingredients, as it were, these three necessary ways that a child of God truly changes by putting off, putting off sinful habits. Number two, putting in the word of God, being renewed in our minds. And then number three, putting on new godly habits, putting off, putting in the word, 
and then putting on godly habits. That, that's God's blueprint for change. That's what God says about how people change. You say, Jeff, I get the explanation, but I battle this in my life. Or maybe you've heard somebody share their heart with you and pour out their heart about the sins that they battle and they feel trapped and they feel confined. What do I do? Where do I go? How do I get rid of this? Can, can you help me? Can you give me some wisdom? Can you give me some, some examples that I can follow? The Apostle Paul does just that in chapter 4. Today we're going to look at examples of how people change. For example, how does the liar, the liar, how does he change? As the man or the woman or the young person who's, who's sinning by lying and they're caught in this lie and they feel guilty in their lie and they feel like they're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper in this web of lies, how do they change? How does an angry person change? An angry man or an angry woman or an angry teen who's been regenerated by God. And when those moments of that emotion of anger come flaring out, how do I change? I feel guilty. I know it was wrong. How do I change? Somebody who's stealing, how does the thief change? Somebody who's living a life with rotten speech. Their words are not good for building up. Their, their, their words are quite discouraging, quite tearing down, quite rotten, quite unhelpful. How do we change? Is it possible to talk in a way that is pleasing to God? How do I live not emotionally in the moment, but how do I respond in a godly way even when I'm falsely accused or when bad things happen? How do I respond in a way that pleases God? What is God's blueprint and his template and the divine formula and God's path for true change? We come right here to Paul's explanation and examples of how people change. I know that this is a practical section of Scripture, and I don't want the sermon to just be sort of, of, of a uh, behavior modification sermon. I'm not here to just sort of tell you a few things to do to kind of shape up your life and be better. That's not my goal. My goal is everything that I say from Ephesians, it builds on, it stands on Ephesians chapter 1, that here is God's plan for your holiness as you seek to walk in a way that is pleasing to the God who saves you. Again, if you try to live out this section today without being saved, it's like trying to go on vacation with an empty tank. You're just not going to go anywhere. It's not going to last. There's not going to be true change. But insofar as you are saved and redeemed and bought and regenerated by the mercy of God, the old has gone, the new has come, now you are able, and not just able, but commanded to change and live in a way that is pleasing to God. So let's jump in together to verses 25 and 32. And what I want to give you today, if you're type, writing notes, I was going to say typing, if you're writing down notes or jotting down some ways that you can change, Paul's going to give five examples. And that's really our outline. I want to give you five examples of biblical change so that you can reflect Jesus Christ in the way that you live your life. And I trust today, husband, wife, child, single person, younger, older, men, women, every single one of us can benefit from God's word today. This is so profound. This is so divine. This is so relevant. I mean, my goodness, I don't even, do I need to preach a long sermon on all of these things? It's so clear. But I'm going to try to preach the best I can for your good and for God's glory as we look at the word together. Here's the first example of biblical change. Number one, in verse 25, how do you destroy deceit? How do you destroy deceit? And the answer, if you're taking notes, be honest. You say, that's, that, that's the best you got? Be honest exactly what verse 25 says. Look with me at God's word 
in this first example of biblical change of how to destroy deceits. Therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What I love about God's word is that in each of these five examples, the Apostle Paul is going to take this sort of threefold formula. He's going to say, here's the negative, what not to do. And then he's going to give you the positive command, what you should do. And then he's going to give you the reason why you should do it. In each of the five points, there's a negative, then there's the positive, and then he'll give you a reason. Verse 25, here's the negative prohibition. Put away falsehood. It wasn't that long ago, a, a man came to me, had been married for many, many years, came to me for biblical counseling, and in his information form, he said essentially he lived his life of lying. He was just a walking lie to his wife, family, friends, coworkers. It was very interesting sitting down, going through the Word of God, hearing him try to articulate the gospel, and then saying the glory of the gospel and the hope of biblical change and the God of forgiveness and how somebody with a life pattern of sin can be changed. Oh, I love that. Can be changed by the power of God. Verse 25 says, put away falsehood. You say, well, that's Kind of obvious, I suppose. We know that Satan is the father of lies, John 8, 44. We know that 1 John 2, 21 said that no lie is of the truth. The Lord Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. The Holy Spirit himself, he is the spirit of truth in John 14, 17. So God tells us through the pen of the Apostle Paul, we are to put off falsehood. We are to put off lying. And the man was sitting in front of me in the counseling office. He said, I get home from work and I don't want to talk. My wife, my, my, my family, those around me ask how I'm doing and I just, I'm silent. I don't want to talk to them. But do you know what the Bible says right here in verse 25? Look at it in your Bible. This is so obvious, but sometimes we can forget. Verse 25, we are to put off falsehood, but what are we to do in its place? We are to speak truth. You can't give the silent treatment, I said to him. You can't just sort of clam up and not say anything and shove everything under the rug and not share your heart with your wife and your family. We, rather than being false, rather than deceiving, rather than even flat out lying, you are to actively and intentionally speak the truth. I love how Paul puts it, with your neighbor. He's writing to believers. He's writing to believers in the church, and he says, we are to speak truth one with another. And he gives the reason. I love the reason at the end of the verse. We're members of one another. That we are members in the body of Christ, especially in the context of the church. We are part of the family of God together. The command is to speak the truth. Why? Because we are members of the body of Christ. When is a liar no longer a liar. And people often say, well, when he stops lying. Well, that's good, but that's incomplete. According to God's plan in the word, a liar is no longer a liar when, yes, he puts off lying, but he replaces that with the habit of speaking truth. With the habit of speaking truth. Being truthful I think requires three things that is so important. Number one, being truthful and speaking truth always requires humility. It requires humility. And second of all, speaking truth requires a willingness to be wrong, almost a vulnerability, a willingness even to be wrong, and third, an openness even to suffer consequences. Rather than lying, rather than covering up, rather than pushing something under the rug, a willingness even to suffer consequences. That is part of this plan of God here in Ephesians 4 in the body of Christ, but in every Christian relationship. How do 
you in this first heading right here. How do you destroy deceit? By being honest and speaking truthfully. Very simple, and so many examples could be given. I mean, so many examples and so many real life, relevant life situations could be given. But Paul gives us that first example, how to destroy deceit by being honest. Let me give you a second here, and it's in verses 26 and 27. And this is, this is certainly relevant, certainly applicable to all of us. What's the second example that God gives? Number two, how to conquer anger. How to conquer anger. Well, how do you do that? If you're taking notes, you could jot this phrase down after how to conquer anger. It's keep current. Keep current. Because look at what God says in verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Solomon is writing to his son Rehoboam in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 29 verse 8, Solomon says, wise men turn away from anger. In Proverbs 30, verse 33, stirring up anger produces strife, as I often will remind my children, and sometimes they remind me. Like James chapter 4 says, where does conflict come from? Why am I getting so angry in the moment? Why are my children getting so angry? Why do they tell me why I'm getting angry in the moment? It's because I am being selfish. I'm being selfish. The stirring up of anger produces strife. When strife occurs, often there is anger. There is either a loud outburst of anger or internal festering of anger. And that stirring up of anger will produce conflict. So what do we not do? Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Now somebody might say, well, I know in the Bible there's a righteous anger. Well, friend, there is a righteous anger. But for you and I in the moment, it's not righteous very long. Righteous anger is God-centered anger. And we do read about that in the book of Psalms. David models that quite a bit when he's praying against his enemies and so on. It's a God-centered anger rather than a self-centered anger. But I think the idea here in verse 26 is in your anger. In your anger, do not sin. Do not give into. Do not allow anger to get the upper hand on you. Do not sin. Well, what am I supposed to do? Look at the end of verse 26. If I'm not to be angry, if I'm not to sin in my anger, what do I do at the end of the verse? Well, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What's the principle? Keep current when things go wrong. Communicate. Talk. Keep current. It's interesting to me when a couple may come for marital counseling and they describe all that's going on. All that's going on. It, it could be the good, the bad, or the ugly. And they describe what's going on and it often and quickly comes to light they're not communicating with each other. They're not communicating, nor are they keeping current with each other. He's holding a grudge, or she's holding a grudge, and there's anger that's like fireworks, just kind of explodes. And there are effects that just sort of reach into all of the relationship. And what do you do? What kind of hope can you give to someone like that? And often I'll turn right here and I'll say, look at what God says. Look at God's plan for change right here in verse 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You, you can't act as though something didn't happen. You can't shove it under the rug. You can't hold a grudge. You can't grow bitter towards someone. Rather, you need to swallow your pride. And you need to go to that person. And you need to make things right as soon as possible. This verse, I think, quite simply is calling for speedy abandonment of anger. It's like that principle that many couples have. We're not going to go to bed at night if we are not reconciled. 
by the grace of God. And generally speaking, we want to communicate, we want to work through these issues so that we don't go to bed, so that we don't go to sleep when there is hostility and enmity between us. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because when anger festers for long periods of time, it can often lead to angry outbursts. It can lead to outbursts. And, and in biblical counseling terms, there are two kinds of anger, right? There's sort of the, the, the outward, the loud shouting and clamoring and this external anger. It's this visible yelling but then there's the internal, the slow burn. I'm angry in my heart, but I'm not going to say anything to you. And I don't even want others to know, but I'm really angry in my heart. That's another kind of anger. Both of those are sinful kinds of anger. I recall the story of a, of a pastor that was planning to preach on a Sunday morning. He arrived early to the church and when he got to the church, he went to his desk and he was looking for his sermon notes because he left them there after he printed them on Friday afternoon. But the janitor arrived before the pastor earlier that morning and was clearing out some of the trash and threw away the sermon notes. The pastor went down the hallway overtaken by his anger and he lashed out at that janitor. He lashed out at the janitor. I mean, he gave him an earful. He said some quite nasty things to him. But finally, his service time was going to begin. So the man went up to the platform, and he was about to preach the word after a few songs. And he's sitting there, and, and they're singing songs. And as he's looking out, he notices the janitor sitting on the second row. After he just lashed out at him in sinful anger not too long ago. And during the following song, after noticing the janitor, the pastor went down from the platform, took the janitor outside the sanctuary, confessed his sin, asked for the forgiveness of the janitor. They were reconciled, and then he went back up to the pulpit to preach. In a sense, that's not letting the sun go down on your anger, dealing with the matter quickly. What good counsel from our God for husbands and wives, for parents and children, for church folks in the congregation of the saints. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? What's the reason, Paul? Look at what he says in 27. He says in verse 27, do not give an opportunity to the devil. Isn't that so interesting. The more that a man or a woman gives into anger and the more that he holds a grudge, the more that Satan begins to have a foothold in that person's life. The more you wait, the more they put off, the more they overlook, the more they deny the anger. It's like, it's like it gives Satan opportunities to manipulate the situation for his own purposes. And we don't want to give the devil any opportunity to exert his influence in the relationships of God's people. What a, what a word from the Lord. What a reason that God gives us right here in verse 27 in this second example. What is it? How to conquer anger. Number two, keep current. Rather than pushing something aside or ignoring it or pretending it doesn't matter, and yet the bitterness is growing deeper and deeper and deeper. Paul would say, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Deal with it. Deal with it quickly. Deal with it humbly. Communicate about it honestly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. But there's another example that he gives in the Word of God. And the third example that I want to give you is found in verse 28. And it's this. How do you strangle stealing? How do you strangle stealing? And the answer might surprise you a little bit. And the answer is, if you're taking notes, give much. How do you strangle stealing? 
And the answer is to give much. You know, when we think of stealing, you know, maybe some people, maybe even boys and girls might think of like a bank robber, you know, or, or some, some of the big sins of, of theft. Stealing is so much more sneaky. It, it, it can be that, but it can be so much more subtle and sneaky. What does the Bible say in verse 28? Here's the negative prohibition. Let the thief no longer steal. You know, when Paul was writing, the believers in the city of Ephesus lived in this culture where it was common and it was expected to steal. It was common and it was expected to steal to live because the economy was bad. And so people all around were stealing to feed their families. They were stealing for their livelihood, for their income. And Paul is writing to a church that's been called out by the sovereign grace of God. They're living in that culture, but they're not to be like that culture. And he says, I know people around you are stealing daily from their masters and their bosses and from their neighbor. But verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Now, stealing, sure, there's so many examples, and it's hard to even begin to sort of list off some examples of stealing. I'm sure it, it could include cheating and copying somebody's homework, perhaps. Stealing money, taking more than what you ask of other people. Stealing from an employer. And on and on and on we could go. The question, when is a thief no longer a thief? And the obvious answer that many people would give is, well, when he stops stealing. It's like a teenager when he goes into his mom's purse when she's not looking and he steals 20 or 40 bucks. And he puts it in his own pocket to use for his own fun and his own pleasure. When is that guy no longer a thief? Well, give the money back to your mother. Okay, good. But that's incomplete. It's a good thing to return the money, but that's not God's full plan for change. When is a thief no longer a thief? Well, if you just give the money back, you haven't reached the heart. You haven't reached the heart. Look at what God says in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather he's got to begin working. He's got to labor. Interesting Greek word that Paul uses. The word for labor has to do with blood, sweat, toil, and tears. This is hard labor. When is a thief no longer a thief? Well, he's got to begin working. But it's not only that. Look at what God says. He needs to labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he will have something to share with anyone who has need. So rather than stealing, when is a thief no longer a thief? It's when he has not only stopped stealing, but he's now working and he's actively giving to people in need. Putting off and putting on. Work has a number of positive benefits for the believers in the city of Ephesus, for all believers. Certainly work provides for a person's material needs. That's important. Second, it provides something useful to do for yourself and for others. But third, it enables you to work and to materially help other people in need. To help others in need. When is a thief no longer a thief? It's not just when he stops stealing and gives the money back. It's when you've targeted the heart. And when that heart is so changed that that thief is now working with his hands with honest labor. And then he's sharing and giving to those in need. That is the true change of putting off and putting on. Let me give you another example that Paul brings out here. Let's just keep progressing together in this section. Look at verses 29 and 30 with a fourth example. So we've, we've look, looked at lying. We've looked at anger. We've looked at stealing. Here's the fourth. How do I sweeten my speech? That's a good question. Well, the, the book of James says that your tongue and my tongue is set on fire by hell. Nobody can tame the tongue. We've all said things that we think, oh. I wish I wouldn't have said that. How do I change? 
Jeff, tell me, how can I speak in a way that glorifies God? Verse 29 gives us the fourth example. How do I sweeten my speech? Answer, speak usefully or beneficially. Speak usefully or beneficially. Look at what Paul says in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such a word as is good for building up as fits the occasion, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Jesus knew this and believed this because he said in Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What comes out of your mouth didn't begin there. It began in the heart. If you really want to know what is in the heart, just listen to how people speak. Listen to what comes out of the mouth. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. So in our text here, well, how do I speak in a way that glorifies God? Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This is one that I use in almost every relationship that I have with husbands and wives together or just the man individually. How do you speak with each other? How do you speak with each other? In the context of the church, how important this is. How do you speak? Verse 29, corrupting talk. The word for corrupting, you want to know a good word that's similar to this? It's the word rotten. This is not talking about cuss words and bad words. It can refer to that. But the idea here is bad, sour, rotten fruit. It can include taking the Lord's name in vain. It can include making light of heavy, majestic things like the name of the Lord and his holiness. Certainly, it can refer to sexual speech and innuendos that are inappropriate, hateful speech and angry language, sarcasm, hurtful words, untimely words, exaggerated words, unkind words, unhelpful words, on and on we could go. We're not just talking about bad cuss words. That can be included here but it's so much more. Let no corrupting talk. And you know what? Believer in this room, if you're going to live out verse 29 with the help of God's Holy Spirit, you are going to be different from the world. You're going to be different from the world because this is folly to the world. It's folly to the world. So if I am not to allow this rotten, corrupting talk to come out of my mouth, well, what am I to do? Look at verse 29. Now, we all could look at that and say, you know what? I've been guilty of that. I've said all kinds of things that are rotten, unhelpful, untimely, sarcastic, exaggerated. We're all there together. And afterward, we look at that and we think, oh, why did I say that? Or why did I say that in the tone in which I said it? Or why did I say it at the time in which I said it? Oh, I, I wish I could take my words back. Well, what are we to do? What are we to do? Verse 29 says, we are to speak words that are good for building up. How do we speak in a way that pleases God? Let me give you three Real brief little questions you can jot down. I often will have some of my biblical counselees write these questions down and say, in the moment when you're tempted to talk sinfully or respond sinfully, I want you to pull out this little sheet with the three questions and just read it and pray through these. Pray through them. Ask God for help. Number one, is this word good for building somebody up? Is this going to be good for building somebody up? Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up. Is it good for building up? The second question is, is this word good for the need of the moment? It might be a good thing to say, but the wrong time to say it. It might be an accurate statement, but the wrong time in which to communicate it. Is this word 
according to the need of the moment. It's like Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstances. And I think a third question that Paul brings out here, the third question is this, is this word good profitable for those who hear it? Is it going to be sweet? Is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to minister grace? Is it going to be profitable for those who hear it? The end of verse 29, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't that amazing? Your words every day can give grace, grace to those who hear it. What an amazing thing. Or our words can be destructive and hurtful and harmful to those who may hear it. What a way to take God's word and even make it a matter of prayer. Lord, by your strength and by your power and by the Holy Spirit, help me to live this out in my Christian life. Now, why would we do all of that? Why would we do all of that? Look at verse 30. Why? Right after he talks about the words that we say, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How sobering, isn't it? That we can even speak in a way that grieves the Holy Spirit. Oh, may the Lord in his mercy forgive us. For the times when we have sinned in the way that we have spoken. And that our spirit who lives in us and he resides in us and he's full of jealous love for his people. That he would be grieved by the way that I can speak. But there's also a mark of infinite hope in this verse. Let your eye look at verse 30 again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He doesn't end there. He says, you've been sealed for the day of redemption. I love Paul. He can't get past the gospel. He can't get past the gospel. You've been sealed. You've, you, you are kept. You are identified with the Spirit of God. He owns you. You're his. You belong to him. He changed you. And I love how Paul, even in this practical section of giving examples of how to live like a rubber band, he keeps bringing you back to the gospel. You're saved. You're secure. You are sealed by the Spirit of God. Don't forget that. You have the power. You have the ability because of the God who lives in you. He has all strength and all power at work in you. How do we, in number four here, sweeten our speech? We are to speak in a way that is useful. Well, there's, there's one more, and I suppose if I were to give you one more example here, I, I like to kind of generalize this because verses 31 to 32 at the end of the chapter here is so, it's almost like a sweeping summary. Here's how I'm going to phrase this example. How do you glorify God? How do I glorify God in my life? How, here's the fifth example. How do I glorify God? And the answer that I want to give you from these verses is act. Don't react. How do I respond in a way that is thoughtful, biblical, and obedient to Scripture rather than reacting emotionally or impulsively in the moment? And look at what Paul says in verse 31. It's the put off. And then verse 32 is the put on. Look in, in your Bible with me. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It's like a, it's like a sweeping summary to the believer. Bitter. Bitter to have a resentful attitude. It's, it's like lasting anger that just boils in internal anger towards someone else. And that second word in verse 31, wrath. The word wrath, that first word for wrath there in our ESV, talks about a passionate outburst of anger. It's the, it's the yeller. The outburst of anger. The next word for anger in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger has to do with this lingering, settled animosity in the heart. 
It's not so much the screaming anger, it's more of the internal slow burn. Let all bitterness and loud wrath and internal anger. And then he continues in verse 31, and let all clamor. The Greek word for clamor refers to people who are loud in their quarrels, loud in their shouting, kind of like the wrath earlier. Loud arguments, loud yelling at one another, loud screams, let that be put away. And then there's a a word here for slander. Abusive language, hurtful language, and all evil. It's it's a word that means bad. Let all badness be put away from you, verse 31 ends. Let all wickedness, kind of like just a general, all-inclusive word, child of God, put off the slander, put off the evil. And you think, what am I supposed to do? Look at verse 32, be kind. Be kind to one another. The word kind in the Greek means useful. Be useful to one another. And to be tender-hearted in verse 32, the ultimate example there is Christ, the tender-hearted one. Forgiving one another. But I love how the chapter doesn't end right there. Again, Paul comes back to the gospel. Just as God has forgiven you in Christ. Everything comes back to the gospel. Everything comes back to the gospel. So how do I live a life glorifying God? Here's what I often say to my biblical counselees. I say, when the hard situations come and you're tempted to be bitter and wrathful and angry and slandering, what do you do? Rather than a feelings-oriented response, We want to have a truth-oriented response or an obedience-oriented response. Rather than responding emotionally and reacting emotionally in the moment with my emotions high and everything in me just wants to get angry, Lord, help me to respond in a way and to act in a way that is a truth-oriented response rather than a feelings-oriented response. And Christian, guess what? It might sound hard and it might seem impossible, but with the Spirit of God and the power of God at work in you, it can be done. It can be done for the glory of God. Is change really possible? You know, that that young man who comes to a parent or a pastor and I've been looking at pornography and I don't know how to get rid of this. I've tried to change, I've tried to change, I've tried to change and I don't know how to do it. Or a middle-aged woman who's been periodically binging on alcohol. I've tried to stop, she says, but I can't. Or a single woman living in fear and she's been diagnosed with OCD and she's afraid to leave her house and she catches, unless she catches some sort of disease and, and she's fearful and worried and anxious as their hope for her. Or a mother who can't sleep because she's worried about her children. She's worried about her children. Is there hope? Is there hope for biblical change? Or the person who is embarrassed when they come to church because people smell the tobacco, they smell the smoke on them, and they say, I've tried to quit, but I just can't. Or a couple where there's not abuse in the marriage. There's no hatred in the marriage, but it's just kind of a mediocre marriage. You're kind of like roommates living together. I'm just kind of cooperating. There's just kind of a little bit of friendship, but not true, genuine, sacrificial love. Is there hope? Is change possible? People say, I want to change. The child of God reads the word and he says, I want to change. Is it possible? And friend, I want to say yet again, as I've been saying all day today and all last week, yes, change is possible. Change is not possible when you look deep within yourself and bring out your own resources, not at all. 
But change is possible because of the power of the cross. And you know what, friend? Even today, as we draw this to a close, I want you to know there is a great power of God, a great power of God that is available to you and that is at work in you. And I want you to know there is a great forgiveness of God that is available and promises to wash all of your sin away. So even here, reading this paragraph and, and just the Spirit of God at work in your life and in my life, in your heart, in my heart, and you think, man, I've, I've sinned so much. All these things that you've mentioned, I'm guilty of them. What a God of forgiveness we have. What a Savior of love. A Savior who took our sin. He took your punishment. He took your place. And he took the wrath of God and the curse that you deserve so that you might go free. God's plan for putting off sin, putting in the word, and putting on new habits is possible. And to close, I want you to look with me at the very end of Ephesians chapter 3. At the very end of Ephesians chapter 3, these five examples of how people can change that we've looked at today and the guide and the pattern to help you in your journey of Christ-likeness is possible because of the work of God. Look at Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. I love that phrase. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, thank you for the power of your word and the power of the gospel. Thank you that it is all of grace that we have been saved and changed and regenerated, O oh Lord. And Lord, it is because of that sovereign work that you have done for us and in us that we can now change and live a life that is pleasing to you. O oh Lord, would you help this precious congregation to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you by putting off sin, putting in the word, and putting on godly conduct, all for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen.